I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Shonda Yates, a candidate for Mississippi's House of Representatives. Mississippi is a state that's crucial for Democrats to help them win back some legislative power in the South. Since 2012, Mississippi has been a Republican trifecta. That means that Mississippi has a Republican governor, and they control both the House and the Senate. And they've used that trifecta to enact things like extreme partisan gerrymandering and to try to pass some of the country's most restrictive abortion laws. Well, today's guest, Shonda Yates, wants to turn the state around by winning this House seat and by unseating an incumbent who's been in office since 1988. So here is my conversation with Shonda Yates discussing what it's like to run as a woman and as a Democrat in a red state. Shonda Yates, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So congratulations on your run for House of Representatives in Mississippi. Yeah. So Mississippi is one of those states where that everyone kind of understands is important for down ballot races to win, right? Like everybody's focused on Mississippi. But, you know, I was just thinking 10 years ago, that probably wasn't the case. You know, people would say, you know, Mississippi is red. You know, don't worry about it. Don't even worry. Think about trying to turn that blue. But now that's not that's not the case. Like, why is Mississippi so important in the political landscape for Democrats? Well, I think that for the first time in a really long time, there have been some some national groups that have helped bring attention to down ballot races Um, And to help explain nationally what these local seats are doing. State legislators are the ones that are redistricting. So they're drawing the district lines. They're the ones that are um, actively writing and rewriting state policy decisions. They're the ones who are doing things that impact our day-to-day lives. And so if we can just flip one or two of these seats in these very red states, it can have a tremendous impact especially in states like Mississippi, where we've been under one party rule for decades at this point, there's currently a Republican supermajority. So our current legislature has no desire or reason to even talk to Democratic leaders that are there because their voice doesn't matter. Breaking that supermajority this election cycle is huge and incredibly important to our state. Wow. So is Mississippi, and I should have looked this up beforehand, but is Mississippi one of the really badly gerrymandered in favor of Republicans? Is it one of those (laughs) states or not? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. 100%. Um, so, and they, they being the Republicans, uh, assuming that they retain all the control that they would like, Mississippi will redistrict following our, the 2020 census. So our 2019 elections are incredibly important because the people that are elected in 2019 will handle redistricting. Um, if the Republicans maintain a supermajority, the Republicans will cram down additional gerrymandering that we'll be forced to live with for another 10 years. Yeah, that's really, really important. And when I talk to people about these down ballot races, especially in states like Mississippi, you know, I've heard people say this is our last chance, 2019 and 2020 for some of these states, because the districts will be redrawn for another 10 years. Like right. This is really our last chance, right? This is a huge deal. It is. Um, And my opponent is, he's had the seat since 1988. So since I was seven years old. Yeah. He's head of the elections committee here um, for our state legislature. So if he keeps this seat this year, he will have significant influence over redrawing those district lines again. Um, So again, this particular seat that I'm running for is critical, and it's an important year, especially to get him out of this seat. Wow. 1988. Yes. I mean, I can't even fathom... 
how long, I mean, I can just think like numerically how long that is, but I'm just thinking like culturally, where were we then? Yeah. It's time for some new blood there in Mississippi. It is beyond time. Yes. <laughs> Did you grow up in Mississippi? So I was born in Mississippi. Um, but as a toddler, my dad moved my brother and I to just outside of Atlanta. So I spent most of my childhood there. Um, my dad moved us back to Mississippi when I was 15. So I graduated from high school here in Mississippi, went to undergrad here in Mississippi, law school in Mississippi. And, you know, I've been here since. Yeah. So you're effectively from Mississippi. Yes. And yeah. I mean, so the reason I ask that is because I'm, I grew up in Memphis. I'm from Memphis. I was just curious if we had some similarities in that, you know, me growing up in Memphis and seeing what was going on in the world around me, you know, in D.C. and, you know, politically and other places in the world. I was just wondering what it felt like being in Mississippi in the context of how other people talk about Mississippi and how they talk about the South. Does that ever bother you? Yeah, so some some of the views that people have of the South are, are definitely incorrect. We aren't all uneducated, ignorant people. Um, there are people here who appreciate art and literature and know how to spell words correctly and, you know, understand the importance of reading books and th- those things. Um, However, some of the the stereotypes are are correct. We do have a lot of room to grow. Um, there is a lot of progress that needs to be made, but that's not going to happen if we don't have the support of the people who not only are in the state but outside of the state. So, for instance, people who have been supportive in my race, I'm forever grateful for those people. Um, for people that have stepped up and said, you know, there are people in the South who want to make a difference, who want to see progress who want to see change, um, who are forward thinking. And, and there are a lot of people like me in the South. And I think that it's very important for people to know that and to understand that. But I also think that it's important for people to know and understand that progressive Mississippi is not San Diego. It's not San Francisco. It's not New York. It is still a very different place. And we have to do things sort of in baby steps, if that makes sense. And that's not for not wanting to to be progressive or to get things done. But it's just that um, we we need to do things in a way in which people here are comfortable doing them so that we can make progress, so that we aren't setting ourselves up for failure and in essence, moving ourselves back 10 steps instead of forward five steps. Does that make sense at all? (laughs) Yeah, it totally makes sense. But, you know, I wonder how much that what you just talked about, I wonder how much that has to do with the fact that you do have a Republican trifecta in places like Mississippi because they control the narrative. And and what I mean by, yeah, but what I mean by that is that you said, you know, we're not San Diego, we're not L.A., you know, we're not New York, but... People in Mississippi, you know, they may be more conservative, but they still need health care. They still yes. need better public education. They still need bodily autonomy. But if you have, uh, you know, Republicans controlling that narrative, they can position it in a way where people there think that those things are bad for them. Yes. And they they being the Republican leadership here, um, they have become very good at manipulating the narrative, um, using the narrative in a way to make people think that certain things are bad or evil. And, and they use that to control how people think and how people vote. So changing the narrative is important. And that is going to take some time because of the fact that we have been under one-party rule for so long. We can't change this narrative statewide 
in one election cycle. And that's what I mean by baby steps. We are going to have to show people, okay, vote for these candidates who want to give you health care, who want to fund your public schools, who want to, um, you know, provide better job opportunities, who want to do, you know, X, Y, and Z. Show them that these things can be done, should be done, and are in your best interest. Do those things. And then, uh, you know, you, you start to change the narrative through action as opposed to uh, just using buzzwords. And I think that the Republican leadership here has for a long time and is still using buzzwords to try and control the narrative and the, the votes. And we saw here in the recent primary elections, a dozen or so Republican incumbents lost their primary elections. That was unexpected. So people are ready for change. I think they're tired of the same narrative, but they have to be given a new narrative in a way in which it makes sense for them, in a way that it makes sense at their front door, what is impacting them on a daily basis, not necessarily at a national level. They need a separation of national politics from state politics. But I had no idea. I had no idea that 11 Republican incumbents had lost their primaries. Wow, that seems big. Yeah. And for the the first time in a while, there's a, a large split within the Republican Party itself. There was an actual runoff with respect to the gubernatorial candidate for the Republican Party. And that was pretty contested. For instance, in my district, the, the Republican candidate who got 80% of the vote is not the candidate who ended up getting the, the Republican nomination at the end of the day. Um, but there are a lot of people in my district who have been talking about the fact that they cannot vote for the Republican who was nominated and they will be voting for the Democratic nominee as a result. That is unheard of in Mississippi Republican politics. Republicans have by and large just towed the line and swallowed whatever it is that they didn't like and voted party line. So for there to be this public outcry within the Republican Party is a very interesting dynamic that's happening in Mississippi right now. Wow, that's huge. In your district, it's District 64, right, that you're yes. running for. Yes. So I'm, I'm thinking about you and I'm thinking about you running and I'm excited for you. And I'm also thinking about what happened in the 2018 midterms where we had this historic number of women, you know, in the House. Are you excited about that possibility of joining all of these other new reps? Yes. Yeah, so I am excited about what we can see happen in, in 2019 for our state. We have 122 House members here in Mississippi, and only about a dozen of those are women. Yet we have more than 50% of our population made up by women. So the numbers are not representative of our population. We need more female representation at our state capitol. And I'm, I'm excited about seeing those numbers increase this election cycle. We have several very capable women running for office this election year. And it's it's a really exciting time to be doing something and to, to be putting myself out of my comfort zone. I'm not a career politician. This is the first time I've run for office. Um, I'm, I'm an attorney. I'm a small business owner. I'm a working mother. But I want to see my district, my city, my state be a better place to raise my four-year-old son, uh, as well as the other children and the other families and the other small businesses here. Um, and so I, I feel like this is something that I have to do and something that other people in my similar position also feel the same way about. 
And that's the reason they're doing it as well. So what made you make the move? I mean, did it take you a long time? Did someone have to convince you? Or I'm always interested about that, that period in people's lives when they go from the private sector to, you know, public office. Sure. Uh, so I was asked by a few people to run for this seat about two weeks before the qualifying deadline. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I did, I did not have a long time to, to ponder this. I initially laughed when, when I got that first phone call and said, I, I'm pretty sure you have the wrong number. I don't think you have to call me. Um, but, you know, I talked to my husband about it. I talked to some of my family about it, some close friends, and ultimately decided that I could either be the person who continues to complain about things on Facebook, um, or I could be the person who decided to be part of the change that I kept saying that I wanted to see happen. So I said yes, and it turned in my qualifying papers, and I've been running since. Um, you know, my feet hit the ground, and I've been, I've been pushing forward ever since. And I'm in it to win it, and I, I plan to be there, you know, November 5th, at the end of the day, smiling and, and ready to take my seat at the Capitol. Excellent. So I want to talk about your district and all of these unhappy people, people who are unhappy with the Republicans. <laughs> what are they asking you for? Like, what do they need and want? What don't they have and who's not giving it to them? It's really very basic stuff. So by and large, people, we have the worst infrastructure. I can't even explain it to you. If you haven't driven on our roads or our streets, I mean, we have potholes that you could literally lay down in. We have bridges that have been closed for years. Our infrastructure is crumbling. Like we have restaurants in our district where water lines will break and restaurants will have to close for weekends or, or you know, longer because they can't service their customers. We have schools that have to close because they don't have any water pressure so kids can't flush the toilets or wash their hands. So infrastructure is really, really a top priority for a lot of people. We also have some of the worst public schools in the entire nation. And our schools have been underfunded for decades by our state legislators. So people are ready to see our schools be funded. They're ready to see an investment in our kids' education because the people in my district understand that if we're investing in our kids' education, we're investing in our state's future. We'll see a downturn in crime. We'll see an uptick in economic development. We'll see the creation of jobs that are paying higher wages because we'll have an educated populace. There are many, many good things that come with investing in a quality education. Um, they're ready to see that happen uh, in my district and in the state as a whole. My district is also composed pretty much exclusively of working families and tons of small businesses. And they are ready to see a legislature that is going to support working families and small businesses. Our current legislature has... Uh, supported big business, big out-of-state corporations, sending millions of dollars in tax breaks to places like Amazon and Walmart. Instead of incentivizing small business ownership and working families, uh, those are the, the backbone, the lifeblood of Mississippi, the district that I'm asking to represent. So people are really just asking for a representative who's going to represent them, uh, represent their interest, and be honest with them, be candid with them, be transparent. 
and who will respond to their emails or address their concerns. We haven't had a representative for more than 30 years now who's even willing to answer questions that constituents have or answer an email or pick up the phone and call someone and respond if there's an issue or a question that someone may have. Right. You know, it's funny talking about speaking of education. I think you and I may have talked about this offline, but an educated populace can be really dangerous for some politicians. Absolutely. You know, like when kids have access to information that teaches them about, you know, for instance, voting rights, the history of voting rights, or, you know, the fact that, you know, having running water in their schools, a school is kind of a basic right. Yeah. And when people start to understand this, this can be kind of dangerous for, you know, one party. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it could be dangerous for for any party if you have a party that's maintaining control and using that control in a bad way. Um, my, my main thing has always been that we need to be teaching our children how to think and not what to think. Um, and I stand by that. And, you know, I have a four-year-old son. He's the, the product of two attorneys. So I'm sure I'll be eating those words at some point when he's a 16-year-old arguing <laughs> with me. <laughs> but, but I do think it's important that our kids know how to think. Think, and not just memorize facts from a book or memorize what it is that we tell them they're supposed to know. Those those sort of intuitive skills about how to think and how to figure things out and how to rationalize. That's what we need to be teaching our kids. And we're, we're failing them right now miserably. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, what is it like for you right now? on the ground in this race as someone who this is your first foray into politics and you know what is it like you know in a, in a red state being a democrat like just talking to people sure um it's hot it's you know it's 100 degrees and we're oh we're knocking doors um we'll hit 3000 doors this weekend so we, we've been out there we've been out there strong we're talking to a lot of people um and it's interesting my district is um there are a lot of republicans in my district and I've, I've talked to a lot of Republicans, and by and large, everyone has been receptive. They, they have said, you know, typically I vote Republican, but yeah, I understand it's time for change. This guy's been in there since 1988. He hasn't done anything to, to help our roads. He hasn't called me back. I've tried to call him 10 times, or he's never knocked on my door, or this, that, or the other. People are just ready for something different. The word that I would use to best describe um, the feel that I'm getting is that people think that our, our leadership is stagnant at the moment and they're ready for something fresh, something different and something new. Wow. I'm still stuck in the 100 degrees. Like, <laughs> if you, you knocked on my door in 100 degree weather, I would just give you all of my money. I'd be like, <laughs> I, mean, I, I, have, do. I have a lot of people offer me bottled water and offer you know, oh, come inside, stay in the air conditioner. Um, people are very, very nice. So that that's been very, very nice. No one's ever mentioned that to me. I mean, I've talked to a few people who were running in the South and I forget like because I'm from there. Right. And right. I forget. I forget that, you know, in September when, you know, the rest of us, the rest of the country is like really comfortable. You yeah. guys are still dealing with like 90 and 100 degree weather. And I just couldn't take it. Yeah, we had a, a heat wave um, the past couple of weekends. So it's been it's been pretty miserable. Let's see. So this weekend, according to my weather app, it should only be a high of 97. <laughs> so it should be positive. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god see like i i i don't i've been away too long like i wouldn't even leave the house i'd be like oh god i'd be, I'd be on my fainting couch <laughs> with a glass of iced tea like oh god i'm not leaving anyway well okay so that's that's a big deal i i applaud you for that so 
Yeah, so Mississippi is one of the states that attempted to pass, or they did actually successfully pass one of the most restrictive abortion bills in the country. They did. And it was one of the, you know, what people call the heartbeat bill. So it was a heartbeat bill at six weeks. Yes. And I think it was something like one of four states in the country that has successfully passed a bill. And then like um, there was a a, a federal judge who put the kibosh on it. Judge Carlton Reeves. (laughs) Yes. yes, yes, He does not mince words. Yes. No, he didn't. So tell me about that. Um, so here's my take on that. I think that the legislators who passed that knew full and well that that bill was unconstitutional, but it's an election year and they did it anyway, despite the fact that they knew that it would be tied up in litigation and it would cost taxpayers quite a bit of money. But Like I said, they are running their campaigns on buzzwords. They are trying to control the narrative. So that's the reason that they did it. I don't think that they actually care one way or the other about whether or not this is overturned or not. If they cared, if they truly cared about protecting children or babies, they would look at the fact that we have the highest infant mortality rate of any state in the country. They would look at the fact that we have rural hospitals that are closing all across our state that are leaving women and children without access to any health care. None. Zero. This is not about saving babies. This is about them needing a platform position to stand on in an election year to say Democrats are evil. They want to kill babies. You need to vote Republican down the ticket. And this is also about them using taxpayer money, again, to fund litigation when we don't have additional money to waste on litigation that they know is unconstitutional. We can't fund our public schools. We can't fix our roads and bridges. We don't have extra money to spend so that they have campaign buzzwords to use to try and win elections. Yeah. You know, I don't really even know what to say to that because I think about it and I think, you know, how does a bill like that get this far? Because I think that they, there were no exceptions for rape or incest in this case, right? And I just think like, how does that get that far? But I think we've kind of already answered that question because they control the narrative and the narrative isn't true, Right. right? So what do you need right now at this point in your race to win this race? Like, how can we support you? What do people need to know to help you win this race? Sure. So um, if anybody is interested in making a financial contribution, that, of course, is always helpful. Um, You can do that by going to my website. That's yatesforhouse64.com. There's a link there that will take you to Act Blue, and you can make a contribution there. If you are local and you would like to come knock doors with me in 100 degree heat, I am more than happy <laughs> to, to make that happen. You can send me an email, info at yatesforhouse64.com. If you are not local and you would like to phone bank for me, we can certainly make that happen. Um, We can get you a phone list cut and you can do that from the comfort of your couch and your air conditioning. (laughs) Um, Again, just email me. It's info at yatesforhouse64.com. If you want to do postcarding, same thing. You can do that from your house. Just email me and let me know. I'm happy to have volunteer support and I would love for anyone to help. Um, If you have questions, please do email me. 
Again, I, I plan to be accessible to the people that I will hopefully be representing after November 5th, and as well as to people who just have questions and, and want to contact me and ask for information about my campaign or about what it is that I, I hope to accomplish. If there's a woman out there who is thinking about running and she's kind of on the fence, what do you tell her? What's your advice to her? Yeah, so it's weird, but you think that you don't have time to do it, but you will. Um, you know, I have a four-year-old. I run a small law firm. I practice law full-time. I also manage a small real estate property company. And I thought my day was full, but I've somehow managed to add, you know, full-time campaigning to it. Um, you can do it. If you're passionate about it, you can do it. Just make sure that you really want to do it and that you're not just trying to f- fill some space. Um because I think that people can sense that. And I think as women, we know that. If if we truly want to accomplish something, we can get it accomplished like no one else can. And just be true to yourself. And I, I think that we need to step out there more and do these things more. If we want to see changes that impact our daily lives as women, we need to put ourselves out there and put ourselves in the roles so that we can make the decisions that impact our lives. Yeah, that's really, really great advice. I actually hadn't heard that advice before especially for women with young children. I think that's really, really important. Yeah, it, it, it is. I mean, you have to be sure that it's what you want to do. And once you make that commitment to yourself, it's interesting how your calendar sort of, you know, clears up and you have time that you thought was non-existent before. Wow. At least that's been my experience. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm so, so excited about your race. I really hope you win. Um, and yeah, good luck to you. And thank you so much for doing this because what you're doing is really, really hard. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. The Electorette is entirely produced and edited by me, Jen Taylor Skinner. And if you enjoy listening to The Electorette and you'd like to support my work, please do so by leaving a review on iTunes. It's that simple. The more reviews I have, the more The Electorate is visible to other listeners on iTunes. When you open your podcast app, you know the podcasts that are featured on the front page? Those podcasts have the highest number of ratings, the highest number of reviews, and the most subscribers. That is one of the best ways to support my work and help The Electorate grow. You'll find a link to the show notes so you can easily leave a review. And I'm going to be looking out for your review. So thank you again for listening. And until next time, keep up the good fight.